we have a bit of knowledge right now that is truly unique. We have a muscle that's truly unique. And if we don't do anything with it, then we have not um, really taken advantage of the generational leapfrog that we might make with it. And so I'm, I've been, I've been trying, Craig, to think through. Well, given that experience, um, what do we do with it to make the leapfrog? Because right, it it is a special lesson. We we, and we got to do something with it. How do you get ten thousand people? to take a step to the left. What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today became the first Asian-American male to anchor a daily national news broadcast in America, working for major networks like MSNBC, NBC News, and CNN Worldwide. With a 25-year career, he has been a relentless advocate for civil rights and the Asian American community. Throughout his career, he has reported on pivotal moments in history, including Rodney King and George Floyd, while on the other end of the spectrum anchored Emmy and Peabody award-winning live coverage on CNN. His accolades include being awarded the Champion Media Award at the Multicultural Media Correspondence Dinner, the National Education Association's Human and Civil Rights Award, and the Asian American's Advancing Justice Courage Award. I have the privilege of bringing you a wonderful conversation with a sought-after diversity, equity, and inclusion speaker, author of an Amazon bestseller, Enough About Me, an advocate for the unexpected power of selflessness, and filmmaker of Sky Blossom and Hidden Wounds, Richard Liu. Richard, welcome to the show. Craig, thanks so much for having me. You've had uh, quite an esteemed career, but uh, I want to know where it all started out. What was life like for you growing up and what was the big dream? You know, uh, growing up was a little um, strange because uh, I kind of zigged uh, when others zagged is what I I like to say. Because um, I almost flunked twice, got kicked out of my first high school, almost um, uh, almost. Well, I didn't go to college. Uh, almost never went to college, I'd just say. Um, I left high school barely graduating with a grade point average out of four, by the way, uh, a 1.2 or something like that or something below 1.0. And um, it was a early life of not liking what I think was typical. So I did not work. I did not go to college. Instead, what I did is I worked at Mrs. Fields Cookies 
And uh, that was a cookie store that had about 500 locations, um, some uh, in Oz, some uh, across the, the world, but most of it in the United States. And I did that for five years. And um, as all my other friends and colleagues were, I uh, said, uh, I should say those my age were going to college at that time. So it started out a little bit off the beaten path. And so when I finally went back to school, um, that was um, that was surprising to many. <laughs> and, and so what was that? Was it just you didn't like, uh, you know, the people trying to put you into square pegs or uh, uh, square holes, I should say, or was it more around that the education system didn't really fit you or was or was life just kind of, you you were struggling to find your way in life? Yeah, first of all, at that age, uh, most of us are challenging everything, uh, number one. Number two, um, I didn't see the practicality, the ROI of why I was learning these things. Like, why am I learning about history and why am I learning about calculus and all these other things that just seem so impractical and... I would say the third reason was I thought I was going to die. Uh, at the age of 14, I had a, an un, I had a heart condition that they could not diagnose. They weren't quite sure what it was. I thought it was a mitral valve prolapse as a uh, instigator, but you know I, I could be. I was on the tennis team, uh, and if I at any moment my heart could begin beating at a when I counted it, you know 150, 200 beats a minute. Uh, it, probably was not beating that fast or maybe it was it was just um some sort of arrhythmia that was causing it to sound like that but i quickly was rethinking what the heck what why are we doing this and um that was the first of i think three uh i should have died situations that have reminded me uh why are we learning calculus <laughs> Fascinating. We have a few things in common. I, I had heart problems from a very young age, which they couldn't diagnose either. Um, played sport, and I was always that one that was like, "Okay, show me how this is practical in life." So yeah, it's, exactly. There's something. There's something in that. Um, and it, but then, what was the what was kind of the draw to getting into journalism and being in media, and even going back to university? So after five years, I decided I just couldn't do cookies the rest of my life. Uh, I'd enjoyed it. It taught me a lot of lessons in dealing with people in management and running a small business. And um, once I realized if I was going to make it past, you know, my, I guess, 21, I couldn't be doing this. And it wasn't as gratifying as it had been the first four years. I got fired. Um, at the end of those five years, and it was good to get fired, I guess. At the time, I, I didn't want to talk about it for probably 20 years, and I, I, I would say openly, oh, no, I quit first. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I left before they could fire me. Um, but in, in actuality, it was goodbye, Richard. And um, after reassessing that I want to stay in that industry, which I could have, uh, I moved on to a city college, a community college for two years. And then I applied after that to a four-year college um, to finish my last two. And I got rejected by uh, the school I wanted to go to, which was uh, UC Berkeley there in Northern California. And so I wrote a protest letter 
It was uh, maybe one and a half pages long, and uh, I got accepted two weeks later. Hmm. And um, that was the beginning of the nothing comes easy um, uh, without and, and learning that the good things do come with a little bit of um, elbow grease and a little bit of fight and a little bit of, you know, pushing back. Yeah, 100%. 100%. So you wrote a protest letter. Um, I, I imagine there, there must have been some uh, something that was niggling you to, to write that as well. well. What was the reason behind the protest letter? The protest letter, and that's the first time I've ever been asked that. Thank you. I, I, I didn't want to – I had said before, oh, I don't mind if I go to either UC Berkeley or UC Santa Cruz. And then when I got rejected by UC Berkeley, I was like, no. I really want to go there and it, it will be a mark that I can make it into a school uh, that ha- has an okay reputation. So that's why I think I pushed myself. And that was a good indication, right, Craig? Because before that, I didn't care about it. So that was a good indication I was really going for the gusto hmm. uh, in wanting to, to go to Berkeley um, and not, not Santa Cruz at the time. And, um, I, that's where it began. Uh, the uh, first job, it's not paid, it was a volunteer job in journalism. I had done a, a high school newspaper. I went to a church camp, and that's where I did uh, my first uh, two-page newspaper. We called it the Daily Bugle. And then Berkeley is where I started working for a radio news uh, station for the college, which I worked at two days a week, I think. Yeah, two days a week. And... Um, both of those were very interesting early experiences in in journalism. And then really after Berkeley, I, I didn't touch it until after business school. Hmm. So it's been it's kind of a, kind of been a skipping rock on a pond. <laughs> I love that. You, you know, you, you're talking a lot about here around speaking up. Um, someone who wants to question things and, and really try and understand, you know, why are we doing this, etc. As a news anchor where maybe you're not always uh, reporting on things that you have researched, you know, you might be reporting on things that have been researched by other journalists, etc. How, how difficult is it for you to be able to be on TV there, talk about certain or have certain opinions and talk about different things that may not always be aligned with you or there might be questions in your head, but you know you can't actually speak them out loud on on TV. And you mean alignment in my own beliefs or alignment in my own experience and skill set or all three of those? All three, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, so long as it is factual, uh, regardless of my own opinion, it's – the facts, I'm, this is my job. Mm. You know, my job is to get out the facts and give context. And so I don't need to agree with the statement if it's factual, yep. meaning we disagree with certain fact-based statements. We all do, and that's acceptable. Um, when it comes to my experience and skill, um, that is is something that I must uh, dig into before I go on air, if possible. If it's a breaking news story, so for instance, um, if there was one branch of the U.S. government I did not know well, which was the judicial branch. And so uh, when we had a Supreme Court justice die uh, at a resort unexpectedly during a conference retreat, you know, this is an individual because most 
Supreme Court justices are fairly uh, non-public entities. Mm. So we don't talk about them in general. We tend to bring them up uh, as one. That's one example of where I did not have the um, experience, the reps, to be able to talk about it. Other topics related to international security, international policy, um, mass murders, um, trench collapses. There's a lot of those in the United States. Um, car chases, uh, you name it. I've, I've done breaking news stories that uh, I have no script and I go on and on. Robin Williams, uh, when he took his life, uh, I was stuck in front of the camera for 30 minutes with no script and, and no guidance. Um, wow. But I, but I, being from San Francisco, like Robin Williams, the great comedian, I had an awareness of who he was. I, as a Mrs. Fields cookies manager, uh, he actually had to come to my store. He, uh, wow. he used to love to come into my little store. Uh, so I saw him several times. Um, I think not knowing was difficult in the beginning as a news anchor. But now, uh, being a breaking news anchor, I, I do okay with things that I have no idea uh, about. I have no skill or no experience, and it's all about the, the right question and listening. Mm. That's right. The, the, an answer is only as good as the, the question you ask, right, and the, and the power of observation. Now, you've... Uh, you're the first Asian American male to anchor a daily national news broadcast. Were there much like in when you first came in? How was that accepted by others in the industry? I don't think many noticed. Um, I barely noticed. I re remember when I first decided to change careers from business because I'd worked in business for 15 years, went to business school at Ross School of Business in Michigan. I graduated, worked at Citibank Singapore, uh, not too far from where you hail. And I was there for five years. Uh, and in the last two years of that stint in Singapore, I changed careers to be a full-time journalist. Hmm. And um, I had reached out to figure out, like like most of us do when we're about to enter a new field, who are the, or what are the benchmarks? Uh, what are the reference points that you can look at so that you can get a bearing and maybe uh, a tip or two about how to do well? And so I looked out and reached out into uh, one organization in the United States that is for Asian American journalists. And there wasn't any uh, national news anchor that was an Asian American male. And of the uh, 7% of the population, that was shocking, but not shocking. Hmm. Uh, so the reaction, I think, when I became and, and got that title, the only person I think that really noticed was my co-anchor, hmm. who I told, I said, well, I'm leaving this network to go on to another network within the CNN family. And she said, well, you're now going to become... Um, the first Asian American male to do that. How do you feel? And I, I looked, her name is Melissa. And Melissa Long, um, she, she very intuitively had asked that question. I said, wow, yeah, you're right. This is quite something. I think the reaction that I do cherish um, is the one that's not wasn't often said. My parents, who really didn't care whether I was 
making cookies or a, a news anchor, uh, I knew were smiling ear to ear, but would never say it out loud. They'd do a good job. And they weren't, they didn't fit the stereotype in movies of, oh, I don't care and stop doing it. No, that wasn't it. They were like, if you're happy, you're doing good, great. Um, and so when I got the new job, I think my dad and my mom were, were proud in their direct and indirect way. Mm. That was the most important. Yeah, 100%. Now, now, in your role, I presume you get probably more, mm, I was trying to think of negative is the right word, but you know, maybe more lower energy things to speak about um, than, than say the positive side of things. How do you manage your emotions and be able to uh, obviously stay connected with the stories, et cetera, when there are so many mm. that, that are negative, um, but try and stay upbeat in yourself because you've got to be able to show the connection, the emotion to it, but also you've got to look after yourself at the same time as well. Yeah, several layers to that question. So mass murders, uh, which I've done hour upon hour upon hour, whether it's uh, in the United States or in Europe, uh, I've been on the ground and anchoring during these cases where it's fully negative, correct? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the massacre of elementary school children in Connecticut, uh, that one was probably one of the most uh, difficult and emotional. And I'd already done so many before then, Craig, of uh, these mass shootings. And But when it turned out that these were children, uh, every time I tell the story, if I go back, you know, depending on how long we talk about it, it becomes very emotional because it's it's just unheard of and um a, a a thing we just can't even grasp um the oh my lord response that uh no matter the day or the the decade after i can i can still feel it that uh with all shootings there is there are amazing things that are happening simultaneously and the way that I manage the good with the bad that you're asking about, the joy despite difficulty or horror or tyranny, is to understand that because I can't describe the, that part of the story in moment one, save it. Mm. Because you will talk about it in moment two or moment three. And hold fast because there will be a time to discuss, if at all possible, the redeeming despite the destructive. Yeah. And when I'm in the field and I've done that, I've met some amazing people after a, a mass shooting and they come up to me and they talk to me about what happened. And I say, you stay with me. Tomorrow will be the day I'll be here. We will tell that story. Mm. We will get it on air. And we do. So, Patience is so important. If, we, if as we go through these mental health challenges um, in the field, knowing that we that we can do the good part of the story, despite these knuckleheads, as I call them, that are doing these horrible things, yeah. the the good the good stuff will have its day. But you have to sometimes wait. Yeah. 
it's that, that patience aspect, you know, especially when you're breaking news, right? You, you want to be first to go out with whatever news you've possibly got. So having the intuition to be patient and know when is the right time to share that component of the story is quite powerful. You've recently, uh, I'm not sure if you've released it yet or you're about to release uh, a new film, um, Hidden Wounds, which focuses a lot on mental health, um, including your own journey. What was what was the catalyst to, to uh, creating this film and getting it out this year? Uh, yeah, that one, it just came out in May. Um, and as you know, uh, it's a feature documentary, 86 minutes long. And uh, the, the release of such things, as you know, is very long. Um, but even longer for this particular documentary was seven years in the making. And I, I was a little wary to do it the way we did do it because it includes my family in it uh, along with two others. And um, what encouraged me to do the film was taking care of my father for um, seven, seven years uh, when he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's um, nine years ago, I knew that that was something that would, uh, that would be something I would want to lean in on. I'm in New York. He's in California. Uh, flying from New York to California is like, well, it's not quite like flying across Australia, but it is like flying from New York to Switzerland. Mm. Um, and I was just in Switzerland this past week. And I was telling them I would fly from basically Switzerland to, to New York three times a month, back and forth, so I could still work. Yeah. And I, I think along the way, Craig, I, I learned as people were asking me to talk about why I was doing it publicly. First of all, I was like, why do you want to hear about that? Um, uh, and, and second of all, I'm surprised there's as many people that are going through this like me. And when I learned the numbers of 53 million plus, and this is an old number five years ago, in the United States alone, but nobody's talking about it. And as a journalist, you know, our jobs are to tell the stories that are about the culture, about the electorate, about the citizenry. But we had we weren't talking about these people at all. These fifty three million people, unpaid, untrained, and I was one of them. So I knew I had to do something. And film, if you were to go for the the biggie of all the different media types, film on the silver screen seems to be the biggie of all of them. So I went for that first documentary, and then the second documentary that came out this year was was one that I had actually started filming first, um, but we just didn't come out with it. Um, so I blame it on my dad, um, and also the book that I ended up writing, which includes caregiving. <laughs> I say because my dad was a pastor that uh, his errant son, he got him to do the movie about caregiving and the book about selflessness. He's laughing all the way to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> the, that importance of 
you know, being a servant, right? So having a servant heart, being able to uh, shift from it being around being selfish to being selfless in a way is so, so powerful that uh, some people take a while before they experience it. Um, but what are your experience of being in a selfless mode? What has that taught you? Mm. Mm. Um, how much uh, more I've got to learn in not only in life, but in business and as a journalist. Uh, now, most of the projects and um, the outside work that I do is focused on, you know, not only going to the soup kitchen, if you will, but also what are the narratives, the action-based narratives around how we get there of selflessness. And so the first book was about individuals. The second book that I have been working on is about the potential selfless economy or the selfless business. Mm-hmm. And uh, wouldn't be the first book written, but I do believe the approach that I would take um, would mix both business because of my background, second of all, uh, media uh, because of my second phase in in my career, three, uh, media slash journalism, three, academia because of uh, my partners and my education, um, and also community. Uh, so all of the volunteer work brought in gives you real on the ground understanding of people that are going through what this selfless economy might be. And so I'm excited about that because um, I think the way I've decided to take this energy that was learned and taking care of my dad for those years is to see where we can bring it into spaces that we haven't. And one of those spaces I think that we can add more intellectual capital to is in uh, the industrial space. So, and I'll finish uh, the commentary with, you know, are we in industry 4.0? And is industry 4.0 not about automation and not about AI deep learning um, and generative AI? Is it is that really just an affectation of 3.5? And is it really the foundation for 4.0, which is allowing us to undertake business as we, you saw, I saw, and everybody did in the last three years, do some things that we haven't quite codified. When we lived through billions of workers staying at home, we did something amazing. And business did something amazing. And so what are those things that we did that we have not codified, that we have not, that has not made it to the business schools yet, right? The cases that we learn in the great business schools of the world, we're not going to get them about what we, what business did during COVID yet. Hmm. Not yet, but when they do, there's going to be some amazing things out there. So that's, that's where I want to arc the thing, the idea about moving from selfishness to selflessness, but not in an absolute way. I, I think we all need to be selfish and selfless mm-hmm. um, at all times because that's just who we are. But if we can be 51% selfless most of the time, I think we're okay. 
Yeah, interesting. It, it, it's brought up a bit of a thought in my mind. You know, when I was young, I always used to ask the question, why aren't people healthier, happier, and hungrier for success? Uh, and it was kind of drove my purpose in life, I suppose, from probably the age of 12, I remember asking that question. Mm. Um, but I think it shifted more to most recently, I've really started asking that question and, and tried to have more conversations around this. What does it mean to be a human? What does it mean mm -hmm. to be human in 2023? You know, we have had a, a marvelous opportunity to have the world's greatest experiment on human behavior the last three or four years. And I think we've now got a great opportunity to reconsider what it means to be a human when you've got so much technology coming in, when you, when you look at how decisions are being made now and, and even what does it mean to, uh, you know, to even look at what is our decision-making process? Have we had it right the last tens of thousands of years? I don't know. And so there's, it's a fascinating space. So I, I love that when you look at it from an industrial 4.0 perspective and we connect it to what does it mean to be human, I think there's some great thinking to be done over the next few years. I'm glad you're asking that question uh, or making that statement about what does it mean to be human. And as we look at uh, the spheres of existence, one of those being uh, business, society, uh, we're now at one of those close points again in the cycle of being up close and then far apart of where business and society, or and it's so strange that we would think that business is not um, contributive to the values that we, I shouldn't say not, but seldom allowed culturally or connotationally to be associated with society. Mm -hmm. But I think in the last three to four years, all of us allowed it, the two of them to co-mingle more than we have allowed them to do before, when in actual, it's always been there. And you know, if we look back to the the great societies or the you know the Romans and allowing business to be business because the they could not manage all of society themselves, they allowed these entities to percolate outside mm -hmm. the walls, and they were there to serve the better good of that community, and so began the idea of business. Right, they were allowed to make money and they did all these great things, and so. The fact that we go through commingling more, commingling less, like and you and I are only here for one blink of that humanity to the question of your, to the energy of your question of what it means to be human, mm. and so um, with that which we have learned, which is a special lesson, it is a special lesson. The last three to four years. The last time that was learned was a hundred, a thousand years ago, right? Mm -hmm. We are, we have a bit of knowledge right now that is truly unique. We have a muscle that's truly unique and if we don't do anything with it. Then we have not um, really taken advantage of the generational leapfrog that we might make with it. And so I'm, I've been, I've been trying Craig to think through, well, given that experience, um, what do we do with it to make the leapfrog? Because right, it it is a special lesson. We we and we got to do something with it. Yeah, but two of the things that have kind of stood out for me, I've found that family has become more important again, 
and so has community. And, you know, I spent quite a few years living in Asia and my wife is from Taiwan. And so I see it there a lot where family is kind of the centerpiece of things and pretty much is the community in a way. But I'm kind of wondering too, you know, with what you're learning through these, through doing these films, what you've been through with your dad, etc., and and what you're noticing in in society, are, are we seeing a greater connection back to our families and serving more towards our community than what we may have seen the last 20 years or so? Yes, I would agree with you uh, that we are and that we had no choice. We had no choice but to do that. And, but how long will it stick, Craig? Will it stick uh, for another three days? <laughs> another three years? Uh, and that's why for those of us that see it, we have to push for it. Mm. We have to help it. So yeah, it's been been a great awareness of the the amazing core family and what it can do and the, the beauty of the effective ties that we have. And the the next big opportunity is to really bring together both our face to face effective ties and our non-face-to-face effective ties mm. and to understand that neither is better than the other, but both together is a one plus one equals three. And I think the debate, unfortunately, is either one or the other is better. <laughs> definitely, definitely. We, not, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Mm. Um, well, uh, depends what that first thing would be, but I have uh, never been to Bern or Lausanne in Switzerland. And I was there with the state department to do a, a cultural exchange. And, uh, I must say I didn't, I don't, typically don't go to places where I don't think there's going to be a lot of change. And so last week when I was in Bern and Lausanne, I had learned a lot about the, um, the great benefit that we have as, as, as democracies, their constitution turned 175 last week. Mm. Um, it is the second oldest constitution of its type in, in the world, they say. The next is uh, is the U.S. Constitution. And that was a great uh, humbling uh, uh, learning. And I tried to reflect with that to them to say, I'm lucky and so are you. We must guard that which we have and build on it. Because sometimes we forget what we got. And when it comes to freedom of speech, when it comes to open free markets, those do not exist without us pushing and fighting for it and wanting it. Similar to me wanting to go back to college, you got to fight for it. Mm. 
Yeah, I love that. Great place, Lasan. Uh, by the way, uh, and and a really important um, understanding there. What is the one question that you would love to solve? I think the one question I'd love to solve um, right now is that 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 book I was telling you about that I've been working on for a year and a half um, regarding the selfless business and getting closer to um, a discussion that is hearty, uh, that is teachable and understandable. That, that is what's exciting me right now. Yeah, great. Last question here. Uh, who is an, an inspiring great leader that you look up to? Ooh, it would be my, you know, I'm not very local. It'd be my mentor uh, from my first job out of uh, college, um, Mike Breslin. And the reason why he's inspirational to me is because of uh, his selflessness. As we're living through a recession, he took zero pay so that all of us could be paid. And we were only a company of 30 people. Fascinating. That's amazing. Well, I know, Richard, uh, you're about to go back on air. So thank you very much for your time today. Uh, We'll pop into the show notes, your website address and how people can connect with you on LinkedIn as well. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you with today. Uh, For the audience listening, Richard was constrained by uh, being on air live today and um, some breaking news. So I want to thank you very much for your time, your insights into the importance of being selfless and really making a difference in the world. So thank you for what you do, Richard. Thank you, Craig. Thank you for what you do too. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders Movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.